welcome back to Insurance Uncovered, the first podcast to bring you insurance news and an inside perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. Insurance Uncovered is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies and is sponsored this week by VPay, the total payment solution. Hello, everyone. I'm Kathy Imus, and today we're uncovering PREA or business continuity. NAMIC's work to educate Congress on the pros and cons of both plans to ensure against future pandemics. Plus, reading the cannabis leaves, how COVID-19 has slowed progress on legislation to legalize and protect insurer involvement. And insurance gives back, how the industry is helping those most vulnerable during the coronavirus pandemic. A hearing of the House Financial Services Subcommittee on Housing, Community Development, and Insurance to examine potential insurance solutions for future pandemics has been postponed. Originally scheduled for June 26th, a NAMIC representative had been invited to appear, and the association was working closely with Shelter Mutual Insurance Company CEO Matt Moore to testify on behalf of the insurance industry. While no new date for the hearing has been set, NAMIC is continuing to educate House members and staff on the Business Continuity Protection Program. Their position is that the BCPP is a quicker and more efficient way to aid businesses during a future pandemic and is a far better option than the proposed Pandemic Risk Insurance Act, which NAMIC and its allies contend is unworkable. The House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee held a markup June 17th for its Surface Transportation Funding Bill, the Invest in America Act. The bill has several sections dealing with automated vehicles, including a study on safe interactions between AVs and road users. The timing of the markup coincides with NAMIC's publication of a new AV white paper that illustrates how difficult it will be for insurers and courts to assess responsibility for crashes when the vehicle assumes some or most of the driving operations. Publication of the paper demonstrates NAMIC's position as a leading voice for the insurance industry in Washington on these issues. You can find our white paper on the NAMIC website. As the COVID-19 pandemic prepares to enter its fifth month, there are still significant personal and industry economic concerns to work through. Yet for some, particularly vulnerable children and their families who are struggling with food insecurity and homelessness, the pandemic brings an immediacy of need for even the most basic necessities. The Insurance Industry Charitable Foundation is bringing the industry together to support those families in need. IICF developed the COVID-19 Children's Relief Fund to support children at risk for food insecurity, educational disruption, family homelessness, and other circumstances exacerbated by the crisis. To date, more than $1.1 million has been raised and will be dispersed between 14 U.S. charities and three charities in the U.K., which the IICF anticipates will provide more than 1 million meals. IICF President and CEO Bill Ross says he's not surprised at all by the insurance industry's generosity. This will be our largest campaign ever. We have supported other disasters and other types of challenges with campaigns, but this campaign is by far um, surpassing any campaign that we've done in the past. It's our largest uh, successful effort. 
I think the industry, and we see it uh, on every major crisis, whether that's uh, floods or hurricanes, that uh, the industry, you know, is very much attuned to being engaged in the community and needing to support and provide their philanthropic support when uh, these kinds of disasters hit. You know, unlike, uh, let's use a hurricane that might hit a particular region, uh, clearly the uh, pandemic is a global event. And when we look at the insurance industry, it is really a global industry. And so I think this uh, stands out for a couple of reasons. It's impacting everyone everywhere. Uh, and for sure, uh, it's the time, I think, for our industry to show that it has uh, empathy, understanding, uh, and wants to support uh, this particular challenge that I think everyone is facing individually and collectively. Not a surprise, but we're very thankful and very pleased to see the industry uh, step forward. And this is really an unprecedented event. Um, and so, you know, we, again, are very pleased with the industry and hope that uh, if, they ha if you haven't given a donation yet, that please join with your fellow industry members and uh, individually or collectively as an organization, please consider giving to the IICF COVID-19 Relief Fund. IIII estimates that insurers have donated more than $280 million domestically and another $150 million internationally to nonprofits and their charitable foundations in response to the pandemic. Well, before COVID-19 spread across the globe, many states were in the process of legalizing recreational marijuana. Not surprisingly, progress has slowed since the pandemic's emergence. The NAMIC supported Safe Banking Act, for example, which would provide safe harbor protections to the banking and insurance industry, is expected to be put on hold until after this year's presidential election. On today's Unscripted, we revisit a pre-COVID conversation between our own Chuck Chamnist and East Carolina University's Brenda Wells about what insurers can expect as they get involved with this budding industry. Well, my guest today on Insurance Unscripted is Brenda Wells. She's the Risk Management and Insurance Director at East Carolina University. And today we're discussing marijuana, or cannabis, as is the preferred terminology. Cannabis risk for insurers is getting very real and is not going away anytime soon. So we want to pick your brain a little bit, Brenda, about um, this emerging peril and uh, understand the challenges insured with this budding industry. And, this, and the jokes write themselves when we talk about cannabis. So I'll try not to go for any of the low-lying fruit. Oh. And, uh, I want to welcome you and uh, look forward to this conversation. You are one of the experts around our industry in the insurance space. So, Well, thank you, Chuck. Um, I stumbled into it. Uh, anybody who knows me knows I'm kind of uh, sarcastic sometimes. And I was actually making sort of a smart aleck joke with my classes about the fact that homeowner's insurance doesn't cover your marijuana stash. Mm -hmm. So I was telling them, don't file that when you have a house fire. Uh, and I said, well, until they legalize it, and then they're going to have to pay for it. And I literally stopped dead in my tracks in front of the class and went, ooh, that's a big deal. And so I wrote one paper on it, and uh, it's just kind of taken on a life of its own from there. It has really become such a hot emerging issue, um, and, uh, and as you said, it's a budding issue. We, we have, I got a million of those. Yeah, so. well, keep them coming. This is fun and informative, but uh, so let's start with um, 
you know, there's a distinction between cannabis and hemp. I know I spoke to a, spoke with a Farm Bureau uh, audience recently, and they're very interested in the hemp industry and their farms growing hemp. But can you give us the uh, uh, layperson's um, definition of the difference and and how we know the difference? Sure. Um, cannabis and hemp come from essentially the same plant. Now, I, I've heard different presentations on this over the last couple of years, and, and I'm not going to split hairs with anybody who has a slightly different definition than I do. But fundamentally, cannabis has THC in it, and THC is tetrahydrocannabinol, and that is what gets you high. Hemp is cannabis plant without a significant amount of THC in it. It has to have less than, I believe it's 0.03% THC to qualify as uh, hemp instead of cannabis. So hemp is looks the same, smells the same, um, and really, unless you're a botanist or really, really good at, at what you do, uh, you can't tell the difference without laboratory results, uh, which is why law enforcement has really been quite opposed to people smoking and using hemp because they don't know if it's hemp or cannabis. Hmm. Well, staying on cannabis, you know, back in 1970, it was declared a Schedule One drug but today we have 33 states that allow it for medical use and 11 for recreational use. And so we are approach, approach, approaching that point that you referred to in your classroom where, you know, what does that mean for the insurance industry in those states where it's allowed, either for medical or recreational use? So how is it affecting the insurance business these days? Well, um, I, I'm going to be careful who I criticize here, but but I, I'm going to have to take uh, issue with the government uh, for not making a more definitive ruling on this issue. And so what has happened is the situation as we know it today is basically these 33 states have legalized medical cannabis. The federal government still says it's Schedule 1. And so and I tell my audiences this, you know, you can be in a medically legal state. Your doctor may have jumped through all the hoops to get you a legal recommendation by state law, but the federal government can come in anytime it wishes and arrest you for possession of a Schedule One substance. So what has happened is it's left this sort of Split industry attitude. Some people want to cover it and some people don't because if you traffic a Schedule One substance, you can be charged for money laundering. And trafficking includes doing business with. You, you know, like if I'm an insurance agent and I sell insurance to a cannabis business um, and I take their money, that can be construed as money laundering. So the banks are the most afraid, and they don't want to do business with them until there is a Safe Banking Act passed that would shield them from those types of allegations. And then the insurance industry is pretty much following the banking industry. We're watching to see what happens with them. Uh, but generally, your admitted carriers just don't want to cover it 
because of the dangers of covering a Schedule One substance that, quite frankly, nobody's even supposed to possess. Right. And, and um, so as an industry, we're really stuck between a rock and a hard place because these, these companies and businesses that sell cannabis or that support the cannabis industry in some way, whether it's printing or advertising or legal, you know, everybody's tied up in this and there's no clear legal direction that we're going in. Um, as an industry, I, I just was talking to a panel last week and I was telling them that a friend of mine is a lobbyist in Washington, D.C. And he has said that this is not going to be, this is not going to get resolved anytime soon. Right. Um, there, there are too many industries that profit from cannabis being illegal. Yeah. Well, and, and you hit on the legal point, which I'd plan to come up with later, but we might as well address it now. You know, we're looking for, and this is where NAMIC is as an advocacy trade, we've been uh, leading this effort for the industry in, in D.C., actually helped write the um, provisions of the Claim Act, which has now been combined with that safe harbor legislation you mentioned that's been designed for the banking industry, and it's pending uh, action in the Senate. It's passed the House. So we are, um, you know, working to resolve that conflict that you described, but uh, I, our lobbyists agree with the one you talked to. It's unlikely to get done in this Congress. Uh, you know, we're not fully in the election season now, and so uh, that may have to wait until uh, next year at the earliest. But um, we are encouraged that there's at least some movement on legislation and certainly a high degree of recognition in D.C. that they need to uh, permit our industry uh, and others to engage where it is legal at the state level. And after all, we're state regulated industry anyway, so one would think it would be um, fairly easy to accomplish that. Now, if I can change to uh, a little bit on kind of background on cannabis and the business and the ag industry, a lot of our members write uh, farms and ag-related businesses, and, and I know from some research we've done, marijuana sales grossed more than $7 billion in a five-year period between 14 and 19 in Colorado alone. So we are seeing an emerging big business. Uh, what are some of the mm -hmm. factors driving its growth? And I'm really talking about the business here. I have a sense of what factors are driving consumption, but uh, you know, it's a big move. It was a big move <laughs> with Colorado to, uh, to legalize it. And we've really watched, uh, and I've checked in on a few of the uh, periods over the last few years where they set up, you know, tried to set up a new regulated industry in their state. And, and it's been it's been interesting to see how that has gone. But uh, what kind of um, issues are we seeing emerge as, as I guess from Colorado's example? Well, can you know consumption drives the industry. I mean, it, it does. Uh, but, but one of the things that people don't realize about cannabis is that it was legal and accepted as a medication in this country up until 1937. Mm -hmm. uh, it was sold openly in pharmacies right after the Civil War. It was considered a cure for alcoholism, opioid addiction, gout, um, insanity. I mean, there was just a whole list of, of conditions that it was considered to alleviate. Um, 
the fact that it became illegal really doesn't make any sense other than if you look at the fact that they made hemp illegal along with it. Now, you may ask if, if hemp doesn't get you high, why did they leak it? Why did they make hemp illegal? Well, supposedly it is because you can't tell the difference in them. But the reality is the hemp plant is a very, very powerful market disruptor. It replaces one acre of hemp replaces three to four acres of trees and grows to maturity in 120 days. Okay, an acre of trees, it takes 17 plus years to grow to maturity. So evidence suggests that back in the 1930s when it was being made illegal, that it was the timber and paper industry fighting it. Um, the textile industry, you know, because hemp makes very nice textiles. And so uh, we had, you know, somebody had just invented nylon. The DuPont family had just invented nylon and they didn't particularly want the um, competition from hemp. So having said all that, then today what we're looking at is a market where I think the consumption of cannabis is not the driving factor. It is all the other things that can be done with the plant. Uh, you can make you can make insulation, very good quality insulation, building materials. Uh, the seeds from the hemp plant are very nutritious. They have can they are one of the best sources of protein um, on the planet. So. You're seeing a lot of people lean towards hemp because it is a more natural alternative to say something that was invented by a big pharmaceutical company in a test tube. Um, I think that, that hemp has such uh, exponential growth quality or potential, I guess, um, that you know it's not going away. And even the people that are anti-cannabis want to get on the hemp bandwagon um, as far as cannabis itself goes, uh, I think uh, I'll give you an example. I was contacted by a young man on LinkedIn recently. And he said, uh, you know, I know you don't know me well, but I, I have a seizure disorder. I'm an epileptic. And he said, I have been using cannabis for two and a half years and I have been seizure free for two and a half years. Hmm. He said, how am I going to find a job? Who is not going to hire me if I can't pass a drug test? Well, you know, you'd be surprised how many employers out there that don't drug test. Um, right. And and it, it's uh, it's kind of, I think in some ways it's to accommodate those who may want to use it to make it easier. Um, I also think that drug testing brings with it its own legal uh, problems. But I think people are wanting to consume it more because they feel it's probably a safer alternative to some of the other things they could consume, like alcohol and nicotine and uh, prescription drugs, especially opioids and uh, the things in the Xanax family, uh, right. the, the benzodiazepines. I'm sorry, I couldn't think of the name. Um, so I, I think we've got a very ripe and fertile ground for this to grow. So let's talk no about, pun intended. 
and I, I just went right over it because I'm trying not to recognize all the puns and those that are possible in this discussion. But so <laughs> look at it. In, you know, we represent insurance companies. Our members are looking at it and considering, you know, what are the challenges around underwriting um, cannabis? Uh, you know, what makes it a challenge to write cannabis and related industries, hemp and related industries? And I realize we should probably keep they're two very different substances that should be kept separately, and they're even legally today treated differently. But maybe you could talk a little bit about the insurance side of this. Um, well, the insurance industry, again, is at a real uh, – they're in a real quandary. Because, like, for instance, and I have not stayed completely current on hemp regulations, but I know in the last month or so the USDA has passed down all these – new rulings about hemp and they're going to be trying to control that more um, and putting more guidelines on that. And, you know, insurance is about reduction of risk. It's about transferring risk away. And for the insurance industry, the fact that the legalities of hemp and cannabis are so fluid right now and could go in any direction that they're in a very special spot in terms of needing to be prepared to enter the market because it's going to be legal. It may not happen today, but I predict it's going to be legal. Um, maybe another five years is what it's going to take, but I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, I wouldn't bet on it. Um, but, you know, from an insurance industry perspective, we know that there's a market out there that needs to be covered. We also know right now it's very dangerous to cover it because of federal regulations. So uh, they're really walking a tightrope. Um, you know, on the hemp thing, um, you, you know, there are, it's just like the hemp, by the way, uh, I'm going off on a tangent here. The hemp is going to be a bigger market, I think, than the cannabis. It, it is just simply more popular. There are lower barriers to entry uh, in the market. So I think you're going to see, and my friends who are in the insurance industry tell me they're getting more applications for hemp businesses than cannabis businesses by 10 to 1. Mm -hmm. I have, uh, this statistic may be a little bit old, but sometime last year I looked it up, and, and the uh, U.S. market for hemp was I want to say five hundred million dollars, and ninety percent of it was grown in Canada. Does that sound right? Mm -hmm. And you can see how then, you know, with all the um, potential for homegrown hemp growth here in the U.S., um, you know, that could be an emerging ag market that would really count, uh, particularly when you consider all the industrial uses that uh, you've described. Yeah, it, it, it is, um, and, and I have uh, been retained by some insurance companies uh, that, you know, wanted me to tell them or help them decide, I guess. I, I didn't, they didn't want me to tell them what to do, but they wanted me to help them decide what to do about the future. And, it, you know, until the FDA uh, does something about the Schedule One status, you kind of have to just basically remain open-minded to getting into the market and recognizing that, quite frankly, it is more of it, – it, 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 it's just so dangerous right now to do the financing with them. 
that that is what's scaring everybody and making it hard to want to get into this business. But the reality is once they clarify hemp, hemp is going to be like growing corn or wheat or anything else. Uh, it's just another crop. And it has been taken off the Schedule 1 list, so there are regulations being coming down on what we're going to require of hemp farmers and hemp licenses. But, you know, from the insurance industry's perspective, this is a very, very lucrative market because in addition to the fact that it's growing, uh, it is also really in dire need of good insurance coverage because so few insurers want to touch it. Right. So to the, to the insurance companies that will uh, take a risk, and I know that goes against everything we stand for, but, it, it, you know, for the insurance companies that are brave, uh, either in terms of entering the market or perhaps forming a subsidiary to enter into the market, I think there's going to be incredible rewards. Right. Uh, it just just really astronomical rewards because right now supply and demand has taken over and it's so hard to get insurance on a hemp, a hemp or a cannabis business that you can charge whatever you want. Yeah. I, I mean, the, and I, I, I think everybody sees the market is there and they feel that same kind of lack of availability is is making it a potentially very lucrative market. Um, mm -hmm. And our members are. I mean, they're all very willing to take risks. I think all they really require is they want certainty around the rules that they're operating under. They'll they'll do their job to figure out, you know, best how to underwrite it, uh, price it, you know, pay claims on it. But when it comes to, and this is where we operate, um, you know, the legal environment, uh, the regulatory environment, they just want to know with some certainty. You can't have absolute certainty, but they want to know what the rules are going to be going forward. And I think. Obviously, that's the big problem in the middle of this discussion in that we have a major mm -hmm. um, conflict between state law, often permissive, and federal law that's absolutely restrictive, including criminal penalties. And so right. it's, a, it's a big challenge. Let's shift a little bit as we wrap up here because there's a couple other effects that are playing out even today, and they involve you know the use of cannabis uh, under the, like the comp um, in the comp market, and then also the use, both legal and illegal, that's uh, maybe driving uh, auto claims frequency anyway, uh, according to some studies. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen in those areas? Um, yeah, let, let me start with the auto accidents and the drug driving. That is probably, in my mind, the most compelling argument against legalization uh, is, you know, if, if we make it legal, how do we keep people from driving down the road stoned? Um, and I think the answer to that in part is, uh, you know, the same way we, the same way we have reduced drunk driving is you've got to have the proper penalties in place, the proper deterrence. And if we do that, I, I don't think it will be any more of a problem than what we already have. But the uh, studies that are out on drug driving, you know, one of the first studies that came out, and I don't have it in front of me, one of the first studies that came out concluded that there was no increased crash risk with cannabis use. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, and so the studies are kind of mixed, and, and the conclusion on that particular study was stoned people know they're stoned. Drunk people don't know they're drunk, Right. if that makes sense. So, you know, uh, the, 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 I, I'm not saying in any way that it is safe to, to consume cannabis and drive, but I'm also saying that the, the studies are not done on that. Uh, not completely and definitively. I would guess that we know what they're going to find. Uh, driving while impaired is a problem. And then the next big problem from that is testing for impairment. Right. With, with, blood, with blood alcohol, we know 0.08 is the number. And it's that number for whether you're five foot one, six foot 11, or anywhere in between, everybody's got, you know, 0.08. We don't have that number for cannabis. We don't know at what point people are inebriated and, and impaired. It's also very hard to test. And I just heard last week about somebody who has invented a, uh, an oral swab to test for the presence of THC. And that's something that law enforcement's going to have to have if if they're going to keep the roads safe because, you know, you, you people react to cannabis very differently, but the presence of THC is what gets you high and what can impair driving. And there's really no way to detect it right now definitively without a blood test, which cannot, of course, be done at a routine traffic stop. So that is... Um, a big issue for the insurance industry and something that I would suspect some of their loss control dollars are going to be put behind. Agreed. Um, the, I just heard someone last week uh, talking about the comp issue and fundamentally the law is going back and forth on it in some states. You know, they're saying you've got to provide cannabis as a workers comp benefit. Uh, you, you've got to pay for it. You've got to reimburse for it which is not unheard of because in Canada, since I believe it's 2011, medical cannabis has been legal and they have been ordering it to be provided to car accident victims, um, AIDS patients. You know, it, it's, it's not that big of a deal in other countries. Uh, and so I'm sure it's ordered in workers' comp there as well. Well, here, you know, each state is different and controls their workers' comp system differently. Like in New Mexico, they've been very pro-cannabis. But in other states, you know, they're ruling that, you know, cannab if cannabis is present, uh, the accident is just simply the employee's fault. So I, I hate to keep giving you uh, generic uh, general answers, but it's it's varying on how it's impacting workers comp as far as benefits as far as whether or not you can fire people about uh half the states that have legalized medical cannabis have said you know you can fire somebody if you want to for violating your drug-free workplace policy and about half the states have said no you can't um which makes it interesting for a national carrier <laughs> right. Dealing well, dealing with benefits in in fifty different states. Part of the regular compliance burden, but uh, well, Brenda, we're out of time. But I do want to. I mean, recognize at the outset this is a budding industry. I think you've given us good insight to kind of the state of things as of right now, and we know they'll keep changing. And I hope that uh, we can have you back to discuss more about what's happening in this uh, area of cannabis and hemp and insurance. So thank you very much. 
All right, Chuck, thank you for having me. And that's a wrap for us this week on Insurance Uncovered. I'd like to give a special thank you to VPay, the total payment solution, for sponsoring this episode. We'll be back again on July 8th with more insurance news and interviews. Until next time, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a wonderful day.